Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. Hey, just before we get started, this is a conspiracy, paranormal, and true crime podcast. The nature of this podcast is gory, unsettling, and definitely vulgar. And we curse a lot, like a lot, a lot. So be advised that we're just two idiots with a mic. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor, and it's just me today, my loves. Morgan is working this whole weekend, aka seven days in a row. And we have a lot of other recordings going on this week, so I'm just going to ride solo on this one. And I must say, I am very freaking lonely on this mic without my other half, but I made you a promise, so I'm going to make it work, and I'm just glad to know that I have you here with me. I hope that you guys are all enjoying your Saturdays or did enjoy your Saturdays because I doubt that I'll get this out soon. (laughs) I've got a lot of editing to do. Um, It is currently Saturday morning and I have had the craziest last few days. Patreons, if you know, you know. So I'm just sitting here enjoying some iced coffee. I've got a pumpkin pie massive candle from Home Goods that I bought on a whim just burning. And there is a slight crispy breeze this morning that feels and smells like fall. Mm. There's football playing in the background, so if you hear Logan yelling at the TV, just ignore that. And I just finished getting a lot of things done for our big season three changes and surprises. We are literally so freaking excited about this. Um, there's a lot of things that are going to be going down in the next few weeks leading up to season three and a ton of things coming for y'all. So please get excited. I feel like the last few months, Morgan and I have like almost been on stressed out, busy body autopilot but in the last few days or so I have finally gotten out of that little funk and my creative juices are pumping grinding and flowing bitches so be scared and prepared for what is about to come because it is bigger and better than ever go to insta if you haven't already and check out the post that we made about our merch because we're looking for some massive ideas we're in the midst of designing our season three merch and getting samples so if there's anything that you can possibly think of any good quotes anything funny or any designs that you want to see let us know because in the end it's for you so like we might as well just get whatever the hell you want us to do okay I guess I'm done rambling now um because intros just don't hit the same without my girl m m dot g what excuse me more dot m double the g so I'll get us started if you're driving throw that shit on cruise control if you've got a glass pour that shit up and let's get creepy
Okay, so this is part three of Phoebe Hanschuk's case. And yes, it is going to be my final part of this case. So if you haven't listened already to parts one and two, you need to head over to episodes 102 and 103. In this final part of my coverage on the Phoebe Hanschuk case, I have made it my priority to properly introduce you to each and every single individual that is involved. Because of this, I'm going to be detailing a lot of emotions, interactions, phone calls, and reactions by people that are involved in Phoebe's story. Which, before we jump into, I want to give a massive shout out and a lot of credit to Robin Bowles, her detailed reporting on Phoebe's case in her book, Into the Darkness, which is a book that details literally everything that you could possibly want to know about Phoebe, her case, her friends, her family, and her life. So with all of that being said, let's jump in where we left off, which was Anthony Hample, Phoebe's boyfriend at the time of her mysterious death. In the months leading up to Phoebe's death, she and Antony broke up on four different occasions, but according to Antony, he claims they were more like short separations. Okay. Either way, because of the nature of this case, the circumstances surrounding the 24-year-old Phoebe's death and her state at the time of her death, these separations or breakups are extremely relevant to Phoebe's case. And most of the information I'm about to share with you, I obtained from the book Into the Darkness, The Mysterious Death of Phoebe Hanschuk, as well as Mama Mia articles that were all written by Robin Bowles, The Age, which is the Sydney Herald, I believe, they're reporting on it, and Phoebe's Fall podcast, which is also ran by The Age and her family's website. On October 5th, 2010, just two months before her death, and the first one was from her mother, Natalie, who was at the time riding from the Western Desert where she was working on a photo shoot and describing her time climbing to the top of Eagle's Nest, which is a rock mountain or a mountain of rocks. I don't know which one it is, but she was just talking about how she was climbing this to get some shots for this catalog that she was working on, and this is what it read, quote, Hello, my tiger cub. Everywhere I go here, I feel an amazing energy from the earth. It has been still, and you can sense the age of this amazing country of ours out here, like nowhere I have been before. It is absolutely silent, apart from the sound of the wind through this spin- spinifix? The wind seems to speak. I wish you could come out here one day. I think you would love the landscape. Lots of love. Your long way away, tiger mother. End quote. Phoebe wrote back saying, quote, I would love to be able to come out there and see where you are, and you know I would give any excuse to get out of here. I've been thinking about my 21st present, and I would like you to hang on to that for me. For there may be a time in my life that I need to get away without much notice, and I would like to have an international flight available for me. I also ask that you don't mention any of this to anyone, and I won't bring it up again unless I need it. I have thought long and hard about this, and I have made my decision. So, if the offer still stands, would that be okay? I am very pleased that this trip is only eight weeks, and I hope that we will have many more visits when you return. Missing you and lots of love, XOX, end quote. So what Phoebe is referring to in this is on each of Natalie's kids' 21st birthdays, Natalie would gift them an international plane ticket wherever they wanted, and Phoebe had not taken hers yet. The wording of this email in hindsight is much deeper than it was at the time when it was sent because Phoebe needed an escape. But it wasn't just that. She was planning one. And that was really made clear on October 20th, 2010, when Phoebe left hers and Anthony's apartment and went to Malacuta to visit her grandmother, Jeanette. 
and she did not plan on returning home. Malakuta is approximately five or six hours away from South Yara, where Phoebe was living with Anthony. Anthony. I, do I keep saying Anthony? It's definitely Anthony. So if I mess it up, I'm sorry. There, Phoebe elaborated more about what her need was for this spontaneous trip that she was talking about in the email. She explained that she was planning to leave Anthony, quit her job at the ad agency, move to Malakuta near Jeanette, get a job there, work on living a sober lifestyle, and save up enough money so she could take an extended trip to India where she was going to do volunteer work. In all reality, Phoebe just wanted a fresh start and she knew that the only way this would be possible was by leaving South Yara so she could be as far away from Antony as possible. Phoebe basically said that she wasn't fucking around. (laughs) When she said that she was moving to Malakuta, she meant she was moving to Malakuta like next week. Jeanette was thrilled to hear this, obviously, as she and everyone knew that Phoebe needed a change. But Jeanette wanted to be sure that Phoebe did this the right way and not on a whim. She needed to close this chapter properly, not running away from it. She told Phoebe that she should return home, put in her two weeks, end her relationship with Antony in person, pack up her things, stay with one of her parents for a few nights while she worked everything out, and then move. Over the next three days that Phoebe stayed with Jeanette, the two made arrangements for her move. Phoebe reached out to her mom and asked if she could rent this home that her mom had. It was like a rental house there. Reached out to a family friend and lined up a job for herself at a golf club. And before leaving, she actually went to an AA meeting in Malakuta and even made a friend that gave her a ride home after. This woman actually told police later that during the meeting and the car ride home, Antony was blowing up Phoebe's phone. So much so that Phoebe actually had to address this and even explain that she was so unhappy in her relationship with Antony and needed to leave him. But by the time that Phoebe was preparing to leave Malakuta on the 24th of October, she told Jeanette that she was giving Antony one more chance. It's not elaborated on much what happened, but I'm just assuming that after this meeting, she called Antony because he was blowing up her shit, obviously, and he somehow got her plans out of her, to which he pulled the classic, I'll be different this time, it'll be different, blah, 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 please stay, and talked her into staying. And just before we move on, I have to have this conversation with you guys because y'all are my besties and this conversation is one that I've had to have with many of my best friends and they've had to have with me and it changed my life and theirs. If someone has to change in order for you to make them happy or if you have to change to make someone happy with you, they are not your person. People don't really change. They can make changes, but they are who they are. And if you're asking them to change to make you more comfortable and happy, That is just as unfair as if someone were to ask you to change to make them happy. I've said it a million times and I'll say it a million more. You cannot morph a person that you want to love into the person that you actually love. If you cannot love someone for who they are, for better or for worse, they are not for you. Just like if they cannot love you for better or for worse, you are not for them. Not to mention, no one can actually change unless they're given the space and grace to do so. Meaning, if you're expecting someone to make big changes and grow into a bigger person and a better person you have to let them do this on their own it's like if you were to like put a flower in a dark box with no sunlight no nutrients no water is it gonna grow no okay so say you start giving it some water and some nutrient-packed soil what about now 
may get a little something but not much the only way that flower is going to be able to bloom is if you change its environment you got to give it some sun and people are the same way if you love them let them go if it's meant to be they will come back and they will be better but no one can change if their surroundings and experiences stay the exact same Okay, love you, thank you, goodbye, back to the case. (laughs) That was a bit dramatic of me. I'm 100% positive y'all are either cackling or crying. But anyways, before Phoebe left, Jeanette asked her about the rest of her plans. Like, yeah, you're going back to Antony, but what about the rest of the things that we were talking about, these big changes, like changing her job, getting sober, traveling, and Phoebe promised her that, yes, she would cut back on her drinking, but that's really all that she could say, unfortunately. So Phoebe goes back to South Yara with Antony and on November 17th 2010 so this is a few weeks later Phoebe and Antony went to dinner at a friend's house and these friends were Arch and Linda Cohen whose names have been changed for privacy according to Robin in her book Into the Darkness. Just a side note once I read this I started comparing timelines with the inquiry report the book Into the Darkness and okay like I said, the majority of my notes came from both of these for all the parts. And I think who Robin is writing about when referring to Linda is actually Vanessa from part two in the inquiry. So I, I'm not really sure. I'm going to continue going forward calling her Linda because that is how it is written. But in my opinion, I'm pretty positive that it's actually Vanessa. Just wanted to make sure that you knew because I'm figuring if you're following along as closely as I am with this case, I would notice this if I was listening to a podcast. So just for your own information. Anyways, Linda had known Antony for 20 or so years, but she loved Phoebe and the two became extremely close. According to Linda, a few weeks before Phoebe's death, she had made Linda a CD with poems songs and little thoughts on it and they spoke on the phone literally daily and Linda thought of Phoebe as like a sister or even a child of her own at this dinner on the 17th everything was going well until Phoebe checked her phone a few times because she was getting some text messages from a friend and this led to a disagreement between Antony and Phoebe and it got to the point that Antony wanted to leave dinner early but Phoebe did not want to leave and Antony just left without her so Linda invited Phoebe to stay the night and the two stayed up talking literally all night long well after her husband Arch went to sleep. They talked about their lives, Phoebe's alcoholism and drug use, their families, but mainly Phoebe's relationship with Antony. Linda later said that this conversation is what made her realize how deep Phoebe's struggles with depression were and they got raw and deep with each other. Phoebe talked about her drug use saying that she had tried every single recreational drug except for heroin, explaining that she preferred cocaine and weed over alcohol as they did not make her as depressed as drinking dead the next morning. And then at the end, she told Linda that she wanted to go back to her original plan, moving to Malakuta, starting over. And Linda agreed. And she said, look, I'll be your getaway driver and I'm going to help you. They made plans to wake up early the next morning and go to her and Anthony's apartment after he left for work, pack up all of Phoebe's things and move Phoebe out. And after this, the two went to sleep. The next morning, November 18th, Linda woke up to find Phoebe drinking and this obviously shocked her because of the conversation that they had just had hours before, but making her break from Antony was still the plan. They were going to pack up every single thing that was hers and that she could possibly need and that belonged to her so she could have no reason to return. Linda said in a quote to Robin, Phoebe was a wild child. She was not troubled. She was just not ready to be tamed. Ants rules are ants rules. 
rules and they threatened the two things that Phoebe valued most, freedom and independence. The two packed up all of Phoebe's belongings and left the apartment. Linda decided that Phoebe was in no state because of her drinking to make the trip to Malakuta. So instead, she took her and all of her belongings to Clifton Hill, which is where Natalie, her mother, lived with her boyfriend, Russell. But again, Natalie was out on a work trip. So it was just Russell there, which was totally fine because Russell and Phoebe were super close. So she stays the night at Russell and Natalie's home in Clifton Hill, and Phoebe's plan was to leave the next morning on November 19th. Well, early that morning, Linda was shocked to find Phoebe at her front door, but Phoebe said that she just wanted to visit one last time before she left. So she spent the entire day with the Coens and then ended up spending the night. Linda said on the morning of the 20th, Phoebe woke up super clear-headed. She got up, she sat down at the table, she wrote some poetry, she drew some pictures for Linda, and then she explained the truth as to why she stayed. At some point, her and Anthony had spoken, and he talked her into staying once again. And she moved back in later that day on the 20th. But this did not last long, because at 10 a.m. on November 23rd, just three days after moving back in, Phoebe called Lynn, her father, asking if he would please come pick her up because Anthony had kicked her out. Lynn canceled all of his next appointments, grabbed his keys, and rushed to his daughter's aid, where he found her waiting on the sidewalk with all of her belongings. Lynn drove her to his apartment in South Bank, where he lived with Phoebe's brother Tom, and she stayed there for three nights. And on the 25th, Anthony called asking Phoebe to go to dinner with him so they could talk. Despite her father's advice, she went. When Phoebe returned, she told her father that she had agreed to move back in with Anthony the next day. Lynn was obviously crushed and tried his best to level with Phoebe, but she had made up her mind. On Friday the 26th, Phoebe went to lunch with Linda before moving back in, and the two discussed her and Anthony's issues. But Phoebe explained that they had talked, and what they said made her feel super hopeful for their future. She was excited and happily chatted about their trip to Paris that Anthony had booked, but there were also many mentions about struggles with money. And this was not the first time that Phoebe had said this, too, not only to Linda, but to many other people. Specifically, she was worried that they could not afford the trip to Paris. But other than those brief mentions, Phoebe seemed to be in great spirits. And after this lunch, Linda left feeling very happy and excited for Phoebe. On Sunday, the 28th, Phoebe and Natalie, her mom, got on a Skype call at 9.30 p.m. and planned all the details for Nick, her younger brother's 18th birthday, the following Friday. During this call, Natalie asked how things were going with Anthony, and quickly, Phoebe put her finger over her lip, shh-ing her mom, and Natalie quietly asked, oh, you can't talk, to which Phoebe responded in a normal voice saying, oh, Ant and I are watching a DVD together, using her eyes and body language to signal and motion towards the next room over. The two then wrapped up the conversation and made plans for Phoebe to arrive at Natalie and Russell's home at 8 a.m. on Friday, December 3rd to decorate the house for Nick's party. On the morning of Monday, November 29th, Phoebe and Lynn went to their weekly Monday morning breakfast at the French Fantasies restaurant, which I want to go. That sounds amazing. They discussed plans to celebrate Lynn's birthday, which was actually the following day, November 30th. He was having like a small family gathering to celebrate, but Phoebe could not make it as Anthony had purchased them tickets to a U2 concert, which guys, I've been to a U2 concert and I'm sorry, dad, but I would definitely miss your birthday to go see them again. Okay, 10 out of 10. So they planned on instead of celebrating on his birthday, celebrating at the dinner on Thursday, December 2nd at the Golden Triangle instead. Phoebe then rode her bike to the celebrity salon that she used to work at. 
at where she had coffee with one of her friends, as I stated in part two. And this is the one where Anthony started blowing up her phone. In the lobby, when she got back home, she was stopped by the building's manager, Eric, and he was letting her know that there was a spot that had come available for her bike. This was a big deal because she had been on this wait list for the longest time to get this spot for her bike because she's been having to lug this bitch up to the 12th floor where her apartment was. So the manager, Eric, later recalled that he was really thrown off by Phoebe's demeanor because she was not the cheerful, bubbly, polite Phoebe that he normally met. Instead, she seemed distracted and like angry and she like ignored him and took the elevator upstairs. Not long later at 3.50 p.m. that day, Anthony returned home early from work as he and Phoebe had early dinner plans with the Rockmans who were close friends of Anthony's. On their way to this dinner, Anthony made Phoebe promise that she would be on her best behavior, saying that she was only allowed to have two glasses of wine and this was like such an important meeting because this was about his relationship with the husband and da 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 da. Well, pretty quickly, Phoebe passed her two glasses of wine limit during her flowing conversation with Miss Rockman. And this leads to the classic wine-induced deep girl conversations about life, aka something I do way too often. Phoebe began talking to Miss Rockman about her depression and her life story, and Anthony overhears this and cuts her off on many occasions. But then the more and more it went on, he became more and more angry. At one point, he even took her phone away and then forced her to leave with him early. They got back to the apartment around 7.51 p.m. and the two fought for a little while. Anthony eventually went into the bedroom and locked himself in. And Phoebe poured herself another glass of wine, went out onto the balcony, and called Linda at 8.30 p.m. She told Linda about the evening and the argument and asked if she could stay the night with her again. Linda said, yeah, you can, but I have to go straight to sleep. I can't pull an all-nighter like we did last time because I got to get up with my kids in the morning and do some things. Phoebe needed to stay up and talk to someone, so she just declined. But again in this conversation, Phoebe brought up her worries about money. She then called Russell and told him what had happened, and then he asked what she wanted to do, to which Phoebe responded, I'm just going to stick it out. She then called her friend Brendan at 10.30 p.m. and the two talked for a little bit before heading to meet each other for drinks at the European Beer Cafe at 11.30 p.m. When they met each other, Phoebe was so happy that she ran over to him and jumped into his arms, giving him a big hug and smiling and chatting all night. While there, her phone rang constantly though and it was Anthony looking for her. Meanwhile, her Nokia was butt dialing Russell, which was obviously worrying him. So he ended up calling Natalie and then she phoned the apartment's landline to check on Phoebe. Anthony answered the phone saying that Phoebe had left the apartment drunk and said that she was, quote, probably with her drunken deadbeat friends. By midnight, Brendan needed to get home because he had to work early the next day, aka not a drunken deadbeat friend. But Phoebe wanted to stay out. As they were chatting, she picks up her iPhone, which is ringing off of the hook with Anthony's relentless calls. Frustrated with everything, she throws the phone down on the ground. Brendan ends up picking it up and puts it in her purse, and they say their goodbyes. Phoebe went to Russell and Natalie's house after this in Clifton Hill, where Russell made her a cup of tea. He then called Natalie to tell her that Phoebe was safe 
safe and at home with him, but she was really drunk and needed to stay the night in the spare bedroom. The two chatted until around 3 a.m. before she finally went to sleep. On the morning of Tuesday, November 30th, Russell woke up Phoebe as he was instructed to do so by her the night before because she needed to get to work on time, and she left. But instead of going to work, she went back to her apartment, arriving there at 9.08 a.m. after Anthony had left for work. She then had coffee with another friend, as I discussed in part two at 4 p.m. And there are extremely different accounts on who this friend was. Some say Brendan, and others say that it's a friend who goes by Bob, which is a fake name from art courses who had also struggled with addiction and abuse of alcohol. And in Robin's writings, she says it was Bob. Because that is my main source for the day, I'm going to be going with Bob. But either way, during this, Phoebe was in great spirits. After they had their coffee, they decided to go back to Bob's house to look at this painting that he was working on because he was an artist too. And on the way there, Phoebe talked Bob into driving her to Port Melbourne. There, she met up with this drug dealer that she knew and bought two tablets of ecstasy and the two continued driving to Bob's home. Well, during this ride, Phoebe's mood swings became very apparent and violent, leading Bob Bob to believe that she must have secretly taken one of the pills during this car ride. And when they got back to Bob's house, he was showing her this painting and she tries to kiss him. Bob immediately is like, hey, stop. This is not cool. We're not doing this. And Phoebe's mood became violent. She began pushing, kicking, and punching Bob before running out of the door and into the street. It became so violent and out of hand that Bob was actually forced to restrain Phoebe. He testified during this he sobbed because it was just so hard to wrestle her and try to restrain her because he just wanted to help her and she was at battle with herself. There's no exact timeline as to when this interaction and altercation happened. But meanwhile, Anthony Anthony had returned home at 6.03 p.m. and he could not find Phoebe. So at 6.25 p.m. he texted Brendan and obviously Brendan was shocked to get this because A, he had never talked to Anthony before and B, he was like, how the fuck do you have my number? So Brendan just ignored the message. Back at Bob's house though with Phoebe, he was finally able to like get her calmed down and get her in the car so he could take her home. Well, during this ride, her mood swings again were becoming more and more violent. She was happy, then sad, then angry then euphoric, screaming, then silent. And on their way home at 9.30 p.m., Phoebe insisted that she get out of the car right then. So he pulls over, she gets out at Festival Hall in West Melbourne, and she walks away, and she's like, I just want to be left alone. So he goes home. And she didn't return to her and Anthony's apartment until 12.29 a.m., and she immediately fell asleep. Now, to this day, no one knows what Phoebe was doing or where she was during the this time. But these missing hours are pretty significant and we're going to come back to them later on. The next day was Wednesday, December 1st, and we already know the details from when I covered this in part one. It was the tomato soup text day that was sent to the entire family and friends group message. And then it was Thursday, December 2nd, 2010, the day that 24-year-old Phoebe Hanschuk mysteriously died. Because we have already walked through her discovery, the events that led up to her death, the investigation, 
situation, the circumstances surrounding, evidence, failures by law enforcement, and the theories. I'm just going to go straight into a lot of the aftermath and testimonies from the inquiry. As I stated in a previous episode, once detectives officially confirmed that Phoebe was the victim found in the trash compactor room with Anthony, his first call was to his mother, Sue Owens, and then to Phoebe's father, Lynn. But after this, he called Linda Cohen. This was at 8.30 p.m. on the evening of December 2nd. At the time Linda received this call, she was bathing her two youngest kids, and this was like the first step in their bedtime routines. Well, because she was literally in the middle of bathing them, she didn't answer her phone call. And a few minutes later, she hears her landline begin ringing. Seconds later, her oldest son comes into the bathroom, and he's holding the phone, and he's like, hey, Anthony's on the phone. Realizing that it must be emergency because he called back to back, she took the phone, and Anthony told her that Phoebe was dead. She fell to her knees sobbing, saying that it felt like she was losing a child of her own or a close family member. It was just devastating. Quickly, she called a friend to come watch the children. She jumped in her car and rushed to the Balencia apartment building, calling her husband Arch and having him meet her there. When she arrived, she was taken to this small room in the downstairs area where Anthony's mother and stepfather were waiting with Arch. And on the floor was Anthony. He was lying in the fetal position, screaming why why she's dead everyone stayed with Anthony until 10 p.m. in this room and this is when he was taken to the police station with detective senior constable Justin O'Brien and Mark Robertson later Justin O'Brien stated that during the time he had spent with Anthony on December 2nd he continued to cry but quote, I observed that there were no tears running down his face, nor did it appear that there had been any at all. Hample was sniffling, yet there were no signs of mucus or snot coming from his nose. His eyes were not bloodshot or red, and his face appeared to be quite normal. End quote. While trying to collect a statement from Anthony, he offered to type it rather than to slowly relive this verbally, saying it'll just be faster. To which an officer said, you can't stand up, but you want to type? This was extremely odd and concerning behavior, even to these officers. And at 12.20 a.m., Anthony was taken back to the apartment where Linda and Arch were waiting. His mother and stepfather had gone with him to the police department, so they all walked in together. Linda said that when they came inside the door, Anthony was still wailing. They all helped Anthony pack up the things that he would need for himself and their dog before they left. Linda and Arch went home, and Anthony and the dog went to stay with his mother, Sue Owens. On the morning of Friday, December 3rd, Natalie, Lynn, Tom, Nick, and Jeanette arrived at the morgue, and there they met Natalie's brother, Matt, and Lynn's colleague, Chili. That morning, they had tried many times to contact Anthony to see if he would be accompanying them to the morgue, but only Sue answered, telling them that Anthony was getting the rest that he needed. Upon their arrival, Lynn and Natalie were taken into a side room where they were told that police were requesting an autopsy. They were extremely upset to hear this as Lynn knew the intimate details of what an autopsy means for the victim's bodies as he had been a physician before becoming a psychiatrist and it made him extremely uncomfortable asking what it would mean if they refused to grant permission for the autopsy to be performed to which the individual explained that in the case that they refuse Phoebe's senior next of kin could object, overriding their decision. 
Well, Natalie was confused, saying, we're her next of kin, I'm her mother, and this is her father. When they learned that Anthony had registered himself as Phoebe's senior next of kin because he claimed that they were in a de facto, I think that's how you say that, relationship. And this type of relationship is where you are living with an individual in a domestic relationship, which grants you the same legal rights as if you were married. Meaning, whatever decisions that Anthony made could override her parents. Obviously, stunned to their core, Natalie and Lynn pick up the phone and call Anthony's cell phone again. They knew that Sue was going to be answering because he was still resting. And Sue told Natalie that Anthony wants to know why, meaning yes, he wanted the autopsy. This was jarring as they had only been together for 14 months. And this entire time, Phoebe had been paying Anthony rent, literally $120 a week to live in his apartment. And the criteria criteria for a de facto relationship in Australia is relatively extensive. I'm talking you have to be with that person for two plus years. There has to be merging of finances and other things to prove that you're in a dependent relationship on each other. All of which Phoebe and Anthony had not done. Phoebe's family leaves this morgue in pieces. They had to identify their sister and daughter's body and then they learned that Anthony is her senior kin, basically power of attorney. They're just shocked. So they get home and they're having this like long conversation about what the fuck is going on and as they're having this conversation at Natalie and Russell's home, Natalie gets a call from Sue. Anthony's mom and she invites her and the rest of the family to Anthony's apartment where they could discuss their next steps moving forward. Despite their anger about the autopsy they all agreed and they set this time for Sunday. So for the rest of Friday, Saturday and Sunday various people stayed with Anthony at his apartment as he grieved. He often held on to Phoebe's pillow in the floor sobbing just smelling her scent carrying around her perfume and just wailed. It got so concerning that Linda Cohen actually called her father-in-law, Dr. Cohen, whose name has been changed, to come over and treat Anthony. Also in the home was Anthony's father, Judge George Hample, and his stepmother, Judge Felicity Hample. His mother, Sue, and his stepfather, and even his older sister, Chrissy, and her boyfriend, Andrew. And some of his ex-girlfriends? Yeah, Okay. At 11 a.m. on Sunday, Lynn, Natalie, Tom, Nick, Jeanette, and Lynn's oldest daughter, Phoebe's half-sister, Lucy, arrived at the apartment for this little meeting. And inside of the apartment when they arrived was George and Felicity Hample, Sue Owens, Linda Cohen, and a friend of Anthony's named Kate and Linda's father-in-law, Dr. Cohen. But Anthony was nowhere to be seen. Dr. Cohen then came out of the bedroom, shutting the door behind him, saying that Anthony was too distressed to come out. Lynn was then pulled aside by Dr. Cohen, who explained that Anthony's grieving was, quote, not normal. It was extreme, saying that he had put Anthony under hypnosis and his behaviors and actions were that of, quote, a guilty man. Not to mention how Linda had told Dr. Cohen and many others that when Anthony was with just them or his parents, he would act completely normal, scrolling through Facebook, responding to text messages, giggling. But then when visitors arrived, specifically anyone that was connected to Phoebe, like her family members or close friends, Anthony would once again become extremely hysterical. Meanwhile, Kate, the friend of Anthony's, immediately began 
began talking to Natalie about Phoebe's funeral arrangements, saying Phoebe wanted to be cremated and going on and on and on about how this funeral should be done. It should be a celebration of life and be what Phoebe wanted, just like so fun and free spirited, which Kate wanted to help with because she was a professional caterer and event planner. This was all too overwhelming. I mean, to say the least, these people are fucking strangers and they're bombarding Natalie and Lynn and everybody else with all these plans like they've come to closure about this, yet her family's still in shock and Phoebe's family had to leave. Natalie texted Anthony because she was like, I can't go in there right now and asked if they could meet privately, just one-on-one to talk about, you know, all the questions that she still had that were unanswered about the days and hours leading up up to Phoebe's discovery. Sue responds off of his phone saying that he would agree to meet with her at 4 p.m. on Monday, December 6, which was the next day. So Natalie arrives at the apartment on time and is shocked to find inside of the apartment Sue, George, Felicity, and Anthony all on the couch. The doors to the balcony were like wide open and music was playing. Anthony refused to make eye contact with Natalie and cried the entire time, which she found just as odd as the amount of people that were like surrounding and guarding him. But either way, she sits down on the couch on the other side of Antony and places her purse on the table. Pretty quickly, Antony began talking about his love and his relationship with Phoebe and went on and on about the life that they wanted to have together. But pretty quickly, it flips from that to Phoebe's alcohol abuse, which he calls the quote monster. He talks about how she was asleep when he left for work on the morning of Wednesday, December 1st. And he recalled that also that morning, he had taken Phoebe's iPhone to be repaired paired because it was not holding a charge. He believed that she had lost her Nokia when she was out the night before, so she did not have a cell phone on her. And he talked about how on the day that she had died, he had called the landline many times but had never gotten an answer. Well, before long, Natalie began talking about her wishes for Phoebe's funeral, where a gathering would be held at her house in Clifton Hill, to which Anthony said no, because the people from his world would not fit into the home. And this sent Natalie onto a different level. She explained that she had agreed with several of his wishes since Phoebe's death, but she would be having her gathering where she wanted and how she wanted to celebrate her daughter's life. And he could do another one if he wanted. And she finished by saying that this would be something that they could discuss later on. And also when they had this conversation, they would discuss what they would be doing with Phoebe's ashes. But for now, she just wanted to take some of her daughter's belongings with her. And this is when Felicity pipes in and says, quote, I think that's up to Antony, isn't it? Before she could even get a response out, Antony, for the first time, looks her dead fucking in the eyes and says that he is Phoebe's power of attorney. And therefore, he had the control as to where her things went and how she was farewelled. And then Felicity's ass pipes the fuck back in again and mansplains why and what legal rights he has to Phoebe's belongings. So obviously this gets really fucking awkward and they have to sit through another hour and a half of discussions before Natalie finally left. So she steps out into the hallway, she hails the elevator and she reaches into her purse and turns off the micro recorder that her father, Detective Grandpa Lorne, had given her. Boom motherfuckers. I want to make it extremely clear that I'm not calling anybody guilty at this point. I'm just saying that is not how you fucking treat people when you're all dealing with loss. First off, you only knew Phoebe for 14 months. 
who are you? Literally, who are you? And that's exactly what Natalie ended up having to say. But let's go back to this recording that she has. This actually leads to some very interesting discoveries in Phoebe's case, specifically surrounding the phone and the calls. So first, let's talk about the iPhone that was in the shop getting repaired. This phone was extremely important as it had record of all of Phoebe's most recent phone calls, text messages, and emails. Now, what we know is that on December 7th, this iPhone was picked up by Anthony's father, Judge George Hample, and then given to Detective Wallace. Upon the police's analysis of this phone, it showed that the phone was empty and there was no SIM card in it. All of its memory had been erased, a.k.a. Two things that you cannot do on accident. Also, in the initial reports taken by Officer Healy, who was the first person to talk with Anthony on December 2nd, Anthony told him that her phone was left behind in her purse and Officer Healy actually had seen this phone in person. And remember, it just so happened that Anthony had called Lynn just 30 seconds after Lynn had called the iPhone about dinner on December 2nd at 6.51 p.m. Oh, and uh, one last thing. Though Anthony said it was $600 for this repair to be made on the phone, there was no receipt to prove it. Phoebe's family's attorney and the coroner's court attorney grilled Anthony on the circumstances surrounding this phone in court. Court, specifically about its location on December 2nd, asking if he had checked any of the messages on the iPhone before handing it over to Detective Wallace after picking it up from the store, to which he responded that he could not recall. Well, that's odd because there were text messages sent from Linda Cohen to Phoebe's iPhone on December 2nd at 1.57 p.m. and they were marked as red, and others sent from Samantha Binsley, another friend, at 4.31 p.m., also read, and then another one from her grandmother, Jeanette Campbell, at 8.16 p.m., directly before she learned the news of Phoebe's death. And again, it was marked as red. Well, what about this missing Nokia and his calls to the landline? Well, knowing Anthony's MO, he likely called 700 times back to back to back. According to Anthony, Phoebe lost her Nokia on the night that she went out with Bob and took the ecstasy. Phone records show that on December 2nd, Anthony called her Nokia at 11.44 a.m., 1.39 p.m., and 2.31 p.m. Whereas earlier, he said that because her Nokia was lost and the iPhone was in the shop, he only called the landline. Records show well, at least what I could find on my end, showed that he called the landline only once, and it was at 11.43 a.m. This is one minute before he began calling the Nokia. But there's one more thing that these records showed, and it was that the phone call at 2.31 p.m. was connected for 10 to 12 seconds between Phoebe's Nokia and Anthony's iPhone. But what's interesting about this is phone records only record timings of calls once a call is connected, meaning someone who is being called has to answer the phone on the other end or whoever is calling has to leave a voicemail, both of which Anthony did not do. Well, claims he did not do. Lastly, there is one more odd piece of evidence that I have not mentioned yet that concerns this phone situation. While performing Phoebe's postmortem examination, forensic investigators found something in her pocket. 
It was a piece of paper that had a phone number written on it. After running a search on this number, they discovered that it was a prepaid phone that had been registered to someone named Tina Smith. And there was a Greensboro address that was listed for it, both of which were determined to be fake. But then it was discovered that this phone number had been called by Phoebe's phone many times on the evening of November 30th after she had taken the ecstasy and gotten out of the car with Bob in those three hours that nobody knows where she was or what she was doing. So now those are two dead ends in terms of people that are unknown who Phoebe had contact with in her final days and hours. Number one, Tina Smith. Number two, this random unknown drug dealer at Port Melbourne where she had gotten the ecstasy. But do we know anyone who deals drugs and has a name along the lines of Tina? Well, you don't yet, but I do. Chrissy Hample, Anthony's older sister, Christina Hample, a well-known cocaine dealer in Melbourne. <laughs> Are you fucking shitting your pants? Yeah. I did too when I read this. And because my only source for this section is literally Robin's writings in her book, Into the Darkness, if you want to reference this and follow along with me, my next section of my notes are from chapters 26 and 28 of the book. Many people found it odd that Chrissy had shown up to support Antony after Phoebe's death because Antony and Chrissy had a very rough relationship. Linda told Robin that sometime in Antony's relationship with Phoebe, he had actually forbidden her from seeing Chrissy. Starting in July of 2010, Chrissy began dating a man named Andrew Chiodo, the owner of Chiodo Menswear, and their relationship ended in March of 2012, which is when he contacted Phoebe's grandfather, Lauren Campbell, and reporters Richard Baker and Nick McKenzie from the Sunday Age, giving them basically the tell-all of a fucking lifetime. When Andrew first met Chrissy, he was absolutely stunned by her free spirit, glitzy lifestyle, and passion for her work. She was a freelance copywriter, she said. Wrong. That was a fucking lie. She was a cocaine dealer, which she had lied to him about and hidden from him for their entire relationship. But not only was she a dealer, though, she was also an addict who was involved in Melbourne's largest drug ring. When they broke up in 2012, Andrew went straight to the drug squad and reported everything he knew about Chrissy's drug dealings, filing a formal report, listing those she ran with and several associates that she worked with in Melbourne and Sydney, even giving them detailed information on her six cocaine contacts. Yet nothing ever happened. But a lot of these people that he listed were members of large biker gangs. And that is scary in its own because if there's anyone more loyal than a golden retriever, it is going to be a biker gang member. Well, this is really interesting because back in October, you know, through the 20th and the 24th, when Phoebe was with her grandmother, Jeanette, in Malacuta, she gave another reason why she wanted to leave Antony. According to Phoebe, Antony told her that Chrissy, his sister, was under investigation for dealing cocaine and she was not allowed to tell anyone. Not just because Andrew still had no idea that Chrissy was dealing drugs, but because they didn't want Chrissy to find out as it was Anthony who had told on his sister and even ratted her out to their parents, which is what led to the investigation being started, they believe, despite the fact that they likely knew as both of their mother and father 
had given Chrissy five figures to pay off debts in the past. Because of this, Anthony told Phoebe that she was to cut all ties with Chrissy and he was too. What led Andrew to learning about Chrissy's drug dealings was actually that she had ran up all of his credit cards, costing him millions of dollars. So I wonder, like many others, if Jeanette was the only person that Phoebe had confided this information about Chrissy into, which would make her a target. And maybe that number she was calling, you know, Tina Smith, was somehow connected to Christina. And maybe she had contacted this number again on December 2nd. Well, let's say Phoebe had people over on December 2nd and she was entertaining them. And this would explain the two wine glasses that were on the table and never DNA tested. Not to mention, if someone was buzzed up in the building, they virtually were undetected as there was no proper record of anyone who was buzzed into the building unless someone noticed them. And Phoebe's injuries aligned more with a physical altercation than a fall. This is obviously heavily speculated and everything that I'm talking about is really just conspiracy theory, but mainly because Andrew was not the first of Chrissy's boyfriends to go into debt because of her drug use and lifestyle. After hearing of Phoebe's death, Natalie received a call from a woman named Kira. Kira's brother was an ex of Chrissy's and he had mysteriously died in 1992. His name was Joey. In late 1992, Joey was living with their father after ending his seven-year relationship with Christy. During their relationship, Kira says that Joey changed a lot because of his drug abuse and partying lifestyle, but she referred to him leaving Chrissy as him, quote, making a break for it, end quote. At around 7 p.m. one evening, their dad went to visit some of his friends and said goodbye to Joey, who was lying on his bed reading a book. And their dad left in his own car, which was parked in the driveway because Joey's was parked in the garage. Three hours later, when their dad returned, he needed Joey to move his car so that he could park his car under the garage, but he and his keys were nowhere to be found. Figuring that he had just been picked up by some friends, their dad just went to sleep. And the next morning when Kira called just to chat with her dad, she learned that Joey had not returned home. She immediately had a bad feeling about this because she had been having really weird dreams about Joey. So she and her husband immediately rushed over. They began looking all over his room because in one of her dreams, Something was about a note and they found one that was tucked away. On a piece of paper, Joey had written out his bank account information and a message that read, quote, Chrissy owes me a lot of money. Get it off of her. Explanation point. End quote. Kira's husband then ran outside and into the garage to search for any more clues in Joey's car. But he found Joey. Trigger warning. Joey had attached a vacuum hose to the exhaust of his car and taken his own life, it appeared. However, the car was not running when his dad looked in the garage the night before to see if Joey's car was still home. And it would have taken more than three hours for the car to run out of gas completely in order for it to shut off. No autopsy was ever performed to confirm with no further contact from law enforcement who didn't even take statements from the family members when Joey's body was taken by ambulance. In both both Chrissy's, Phoebe's, and Joey's cases, it just seems like nobody cares to do anything. I mean, my God, Andrew literally brought you a massive drug bust on a silver platter to the drug squad and they did nothing about it. 
But Robin, the author, she had a friend in within the police force and she set up a little coffee date in which the friend confirmed, quote, every time we put a team onto Chrissy, it seems like she knows, but he promised to keep on it. In October of 2013, Robin got a text message from an unknown number and it read, Hample arrested, four counts, other charges. Tell Lauren I've kept my promise. With headlining articles reading, Judge's daughter arrested on cocaine trafficking charges. It was her police buddy. Christina Hample pled guilty to one charge of each trafficking cocaine in possession of a prohibited weapon. But as for Phoebe's case, she did not have the same happy ending. On December 10th, 2014, Coroner Peter White ruled that Phoebe had climbed into the trash chute and fallen to her death while under the influence of still knocks and alcohol sleepwalking. This is so infuriating and devastating for everyone. The counsel assisting the coroner, Deborah S., said in a quote to Robin, Despite her efforts, the investigation stands as a monument to the subtle corruption that exists in our society, in which he was referring to all of the work that Natalie had put in and sacrifice, as she had literally gone face-to-face with one of the most influential families in this area. Now, don't take this as me wrapping up because we still have some big things to discuss about this case, but I am done with my source into the darkness and so I just want to give one more ode to this book by reading you guys the dedication from Robin and it says quote for the tiger mother who fought so fiercely for her tiger cub may they be reunited in a different jungle from the Greek Phoebos bright one derived from Phoebos bright and shining in Greek mythology Phoebe is the name of Artemis the god of the moon In poetry, Phoebe is the moon personified, end quote. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sobbing, but I have one more thing and I need to press pause so I can get my shit together. Okay, one last thing and I'm going to let you go. So yes, Phoebe was the first girlfriend of Antony's to mysteriously die. But unfortunately, she was not the last. On June 23, 2018, 25-year-old model Bailey Schneider had been dating 51-year-old Anthony Hample for nine months. Just like Phoebe, Bailey had always dated older men. She was creative. She wrote in diaries all the time. She was sensitive, obsessed with her fur babies, and struggled with drugs, depression, and alcohol. Bailey was at her parents, Cameron and Sabine Snyder's home on Saturday morning. Curled up on the couch with the family dog and talking on the phone, she was exhausted because the night before she had gone to a barbecue with Anthony and the two had gotten into a very heated disagreement, which is why she was at her parents. Cameron and Sabine told their daughter that they would be back in an hour or two because they were going to run their Saturday morning errands and they left. But when they returned, trigger warning, They found Bailey unconscious on the kitchen floor with a cord around her neck. It appeared that she had smoked a cigarette and had a glass of wine while listening to music after her parents had left from what investigators could tell. And her toxicology report showed traces of cocaine and a relatively low BAC. After her passing, her mother contacted Anthony, who she had never met in person, to tell him the news of Bailey's death. 
to which he, according to the age, quote, expressed his sympathy and added that he had been trying to help her blossom, end quote, and he did not attend her celebration of life or funeral. Despite the fact that there was no indication as to how Bailey hung herself in the kitchen to end her life, her death was ruled a suicide in 2020 by the deputy state coroner. To this day, people are fighting for Phoebe's justice and for a more detailed investigation into the death of Bailey Schneider. But from what I can tell in the articles that have been put out recently, I feel like something is brewing. And I hope it does. So I will keep you in the loop. And if you want to discuss any details, please post in our Facebook secret group because I am so interested in what you all think. And also, if you are looking for more details on Phoebe's case, I 100%, 10 out of 10, recommend for you to read the book Into the Darkness by Robin Bowes. I literally got it for $12.99 in the Apple Bookstore, and I read it in two days. But unfortunately, this is the end of my coverage on Phoebe Hansjuk's case. I just really hope that someday in the near future, there's going to be something that comes out that helps bring Phoebe and her family the justice that they so deserve. So with that all being said, thank you for listening and we will talk to you guys on Thursday. I love you and I hope you enjoy your weeks.